Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is an episode, another portion of our mini-series, if you want to call it that, on higher goals. And this will be part four today, and I'd like to begin by reading the basic passage that we've been using in Philippians chapter 3, and I want to read verses 7 through 11 today, and then I want to proceed further with one more section of this, one more small area, and I'm going to actually do that by inserting here a message that I taped some time ago, and it is of some length, so I apologize for the link, but I do believe that it will be a tremendous blessing to you in regard to this topic. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Today I'd like to discuss when Paul is talking about knowing Jesus. We've talked about this passage in several episodes so far. We've looked at how knowing Jesus is the highest goal of all. Knowing him in a thriving, personal, vibrant, and growing relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not being found in our own righteousness, which is as filthy rags, but being found in the righteousness that comes from the Almighty God, credited to us simply by faith in Jesus Christ when we are born again. And so today I'd like to go forward a little bit. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that's what I want to focus on today is that resurrection power that Paul longed to know. To do that, I want now to take you to a message that has been taped prior and is in the archives, if you'd like to pull it up. There's a whole series there called Holy Week, a series of messages that I did a couple of years ago at the Passover celebration, the time when we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to go to that clip now. It is lengthy, but I believe it will be a tremendous blessing to you to understand that Paul is longing to experience and understand and know the power of Jesus' resurrection. So we'll go there to that message now. God bless you in Jesus' name and continue on to understand this resurrection power. Praise be to God. And this is our Holy Week special. Actually, tonight is Lesson 8 our final lesson for this Holy Week celebration. I hope that this has been a blessing and an enhancement for you in your remembrance of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it has been an honor 
for me, a very humbling thing for me to open the Word of God and share with you some of these truths that the Lord has shown me over the years. And I trust that they have fed you spiritually and given you new insights and things to just praise God for, maybe introduced you to the Lord. If you don't know him, that's even the greatest joy of all for, for the fruit from our ministries. And so I just hope that this has been a blessing to you. I pray that God will continue to bless you. And I look forward to other opportunities to bring you more series, more studies. I hope to do more of that in the future. And I may be looking to start up one before too long. So I will keep you posted on those things. But it has been a true delight for me. Let me pray as we begin this final lesson for this particular Holy Week special series. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity that I have had to speak on your behalf. I pray that you will bless and anoint me as your servant each, each time I do open the word of God and, and try to speak for you, that I would do it justice, Lord, and that your heart will come through and your power will, will touch the people, your anointing will touch the people that hear me. In Jesus' name, I present it to you. I present myself to you, and I ask that you will receive all of the glory in Jesus' name. Well, God bless you, and welcome as you are able to join in tonight as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're going to talk about resurrection power. Roll that stone away. I want to focus tonight on what Paul calls the foundation of our faith, meaning that Jesus, though he was dead and buried, he rose from the grave. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is where we're going to begin reading, Jesus' resurrection after his death is the absolute basis for our faith. Let's read his words in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to begin reading in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Powerful statement there. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pity pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's, 
afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So Paul is saying here that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the absolute basis of our faith. Without that, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins if Christ did not rise from the dead. Now, why would Paul make such a bold claim? What did he mean and what basis did he have to say this? Paul understood the, the gospel thoroughly. He understood its truth, its power, its Jewish con context, its symbolic nature, its fulfillment, its truths. He understood what Christ's death, burial, and resurrection meant in its fullness. So let's explore what Paul calls the basis of our faith. All four Gospels give us this account, but I'd like to read from John chapter 19. And we're going to read the first several verses of John chapter 19. I mean, I'm sorry, John chapter 20. Excuse me, John chapter 20, the first several verses. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief, my version translates, it's, it's, it's a different kind of cloth, that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, this is one of the gospels account. 
And all, all four of the Gospels give us accounts. All the basics about the resurrection remain the same. Jesus Christ, who had died and was buried by the two men, as well as witnessed by at least those two women. Now he had arisen from the grave. So let's consider some things about the resurrection. It fulfills various prophecies and prophetic elements from the Old Testament, including the feasts that are outlined and observed at this time. Passover was when Jesus died as the Passover lamb. Unleavened bread was when he was buried in the ground. First fruits was when he rose on this day. He did, in fact, rise as the first fruits. And that's another whole teaching. And, and I've done that in a feast study that you can find. He rose from the dead as the first fruits, just like Paul said. It also fulfills several prophecies from Psalms, some of which we've already read this week. But I want to focus on a different element tonight. I want us now to look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, I want to read a passage of scripture from here. I want to begin reading in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. We read that and talked about that a little bit yesterday. For you will not leave my soul in Hades or in the place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, Peter is in the midst of a powerful sermon here where he is expounding on the gospel to all those who have come to Jerusalem and in that area and are confused about what's happening now at this Acts chapter 2 outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So he recounts who Jesus is, and he recounts what's happened. But then he expounds a little bit on the resurrection. He talks about how it has a prophetic fulfillment. The prophetic fulfillment 
from Psalm 16, which he quoted, verses 8 through 11. Remember, Jesus was resting in hope. He had laid down in the tomb. His body was there in hope, in confidence, in trust, in expectation. What was he hoping for? Vindication and victory. He expounded on the resurrection and its absolute necessity, the fact that the grave could not hold Jesus down. It was impossible. This was his vindication. He also spoke of the resurrection of the Lord and its progression being how he was raised to then go and sit down at the right hand of God. I'd like to turn now and just read you one scripture from Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, the Lord Jesus is speaking here, and he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Hallelujah. Jesus is the risen one. Herein is his victory. He conquered the grave, death, and hell. So let's understand what Peter is saying here. Why did he say the grave could not hold him? Why was it impossible for the grave to hold him? All of this ties to who Jesus was. We know that Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Throughout scripture, God has revealed himself with many different names, and we've studied some of those, and some of those are also a video series that's on this Facebook page. But he revealed himself through different names or titles, whichever you want to call them, throughout scripture. We know there's Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our shepherd, uh, Yahweh Rohi, Yahweh Rofi, the Lord our healer, or Rofeka. I believe that he revealed himself in many different names because of two main reasons that I see, you may see others. I believe that one name alone in our English language or in whatever language we, we have here, here, humanly speaking, one name alone cannot, it cannot contain all of him. It cannot sum up all of him. He is far bigger than any one name. No one name can come close to expressing the whole of who he is. Nor is he limited to just one name. In other words, he's not just redeemer. He's not just healer. He's not just provider. He's not just shepherd. He's not just righteousness. He's all of these, all of them, in an unlimited fashion. One particular one that I want to focus on tonight is Elohim Kadosh, or the Holy God. When Peter quoted David in the Psalms, David said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. There's a reason for that, and we want to talk about that right now. The Jewish people um, have a, a beautiful scripture. They call it the Shema, and it's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's verse 4. 
And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word for one is the Hebrew word akad, and it means a united one or one, a whole unity of one, unity in diversity. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word Elohim is in the plural form. Now, we don't worship three gods. We're not talking about plural gods, but we do worship a three-in-one God who is completely united in and of himself and in his own Godhead. In other words, everything that God the Father is, God the Son also is, and God the Holy Spirit also is. Every one of these names apply to each of the persons of the Trinity, each of them, in his triune nature. So God the Son is also holy. He is the Holy One, just like God the Father, and just like God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That means he's sinless. He's separate. He's completely dis detached from all evil or wrong. The Hebrew word is kadosh, and it means sacred or holy, that which is distinct from the common or the profane, that which is totally good and entirely without evil. As a matter of fact, John in 1 John 1, 5 says that in him is no darkness at all, meaning no evil is in him whatsoever. He has absolutely no moral pollution. He's not to be treated as common. He has absolutely no sin. Remember the afikoman from another uh, lesson earlier this week. That unleavened bread represents the fact that he had no sin. He was born of the virgin from the eternal seed of God's word the whole, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he lived a life that was sinless completely, free of all moral imperfections. He was the Holy One, absolutely separate from all evil. So he had the Holy Blood in him. Even though he was born as a man and became a man, we know that he walked and lived without sin. His sinless life is essential because without that, he could not be the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. Only, only the perfect could be offered to God and be acceptable as a sacrifice. Jesus was that perfect one. He took upon himself our sins, almost like he would put on a backpack or a burden in order to be our substitute. But he himself was without sin. So we understand he was sinless, and yet he died for the sinner in our stead. We see that pattern from the Old Testament, the innocent dying for the guilty. The sacrifice was the substitute, and so he was our substitute and bore our death penalty in our place. Now let's talk about this from a legal perspective for just a moment. Now I'm not a lawyer at all, never studied it. But I do understand a few basic things about law. God is a holy God, and he is a just judge. He judges righteously. 
in some places in the in the Bible, he is called the judge of all the earth. He's a judge, and he has instituted a holy law. The law contains demands and standards, and every person alive stands guilty of breaking those because none of us are perfect. None of us can keep them all. There's none righteous, the Bible tells us, even in Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is the problem. Now, we might think, well, I didn't murder anybody, but have you lied? Have you told a lie? Have you had a prideful thought? Have you had prejudice against someone? Have you hated someone? Have you been angry without a cause against someone? See, all of those things are wrongs. All of those things are condemned in God's law. So all of us stand guilty before a holy God in and of ourselves now. And sin carries a price tag. Sin becomes a master, like an employer, holding in chains its slave or its employee. It's as if sin is the employer and the sinner is the employee. As an employer, sin pays wages to the employee. Romans 6.23 tells us exactly what they are. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death. As a matter of fact, all are going to experience physical death unless you happen to be one of those that is alive at the time of what we call the rapture, the coming of the Lord. But decay, utter corruption, Complete separation from God forever is what he's speaking of here. The wages of sin is that death. It's what Revelation calls the second death in Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15. Eternal damnation and separation from God without any hope of ever being redeemed. That's the wages of sin. That's what sin will pay for its employees and its slaves. But if there was a sinless person who was not under sin's wages, if there was an innocent one, one who never committed any sin to earn its wages, one who never fell under the employment of sin and its master, one who was never under any employment contract with sin's master, that person would not be subject to sin's wages. He would not be under sin's control. He would not be subject to sin's law. He would not be a slave to sin. He would not be entitled or doomed to receive sin's wages, and he could not earn them. To force such an innocent one to be paid sin's wages would be unjust. To force a sinless person to suffer the second death, that eternal separation from God, would be unjust, ethically and morally corrupt. To force one, let me put it this way, different way, to force someone who never committed a crime to stay without parole in prison for a crime he never committed would be unjust and wrong. And we would say that such a judge 
that would allow that is unjust. Such a sinless one would be due vindication. He would be due freedom. He would be due true justice and judgment. Enter the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is this holy one. He is this sinless one. That's why Peter could stand up in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, and say it was not possible for the grave to hold him. That is in the absolute negative. It absolutely had no power to hold him. It could not hold him even if it wanted to because he was the sinless one. He was the one who took the keys from the devil and triumphed over him and overcame him, just like Revelation 1, 18 says. The devil had no right to hold him in the grave. The Holy One was now on the scene. Now I see it kind of playing out like this, something like this maybe. The Holy One came on the scene. He rose up, showed up at the devil's doorstep, didn't bother to ring any bell. Rather, he just roared, devil, come here. And so the devil sheepishly appears. He has to. Keys now. Or the devil might be perplexed. He might say, well, how can this be? Because I killed you. Oh, Jesus would say, but have you not read in my holy book? And I'm reading from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I love the New King James translation of this verse. And I'm going to read it here. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. So Jesus might tell him, he says, hey, didn't you read in my book? I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be your plagues. Oh, grave. I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. I see him saying here, it's as if Jesus did a Bible teaching with the devil here. And he says, I'm going to ransom them from the power of the grave. I'm going to buy that employee out of your slave market. I'm going to redeem them from death. I'm going to buy them back so that they do not even have to experience the second death. Devil, you might ask how. Oh, you forgot to read the rest of the verse. Oh, death, I will be your plagues. I will be the one who totally destroys you, who subdues you and destroys your power. Oh, grave, I will be your destruction. I will be your exterminator. I will exterminate you and your power over all those who are mine. And it says, pity is hidden from my eyes. In other words, it's a done deal. And you could cry or scream, but it ain't going to change anything. I'll not pity you. Death and the grave, I'm destroying your power. Your right is gone now. And you cannot change it. Oh, hallelujah. What a powerful word of scripture. And a word that he performed when he rose from the dead. Why could Hosea prophesied that this was God speaking this because Jesus Christ, who Paul calls the first fruits from the dead, is the Holy One, the one who had no corruption, 
and therefore could not see corruption. For God, the judge, to not have raised Christ Jesus from the dead would have been unjust. He would have made an innocent person remain in prison for a crime he did not commit. That's why Jesus' final word on the cross was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He recognized God as the just judge, and that's why he rested in hope in vindication, for his vindication. Not only did he willingly exhale his last breath in that moment, but he also committed himself to the just judge of all the earth, the one who cannot and will not judge unjustly, the one who cannot and will not violate his word, the one who cannot and will not leave a holy one under the power of the wages of sin. The resurrection of Jesus is God's vindication of Jesus, the Holy One. It's God's approval, get this beloved, it's God's approval of his sinless sacrifice once for all, for every believer who will accept him. Thereby, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 later on, guaranteeing us of our own coming resurrection too. This is the beauty of understanding the holy God we serve. He is totally and completely free of all corruption. Therefore, when he willingly took our sin upon himself, he guaranteed our resurrection and left us with this blessed hope because he lives. He is the one who was dead, now is alive, and lives forevermore, the Holy One. And with that, I want to look at one more beauty of the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in his glorified body. He did not rise up in the same body, that, that same physical body that had laid in the grave. Let's go back to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15. And now I'd like to begin reading in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And then he goes on and he talks some more about this. And he quotes the verse in Hosea that we just read. Christ had a new body now. It was not bound by the limits of the old natural physical body. Resurrection power now was instituted through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The proof of this is in the clause. If you'll remember when we read in John chapter 20, the clause, remember, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had taken 
Jesus' body from the cross and had wrapped it in fine linen, wrapped it up in the cloth, his body, and then there was a different cloth that they would wrap the head in. Now remember in John chapter 20, when, the, when Jesus had arisen from the dead and the disciples came and looked inside, John looked at the cloths inside. Both John and Peter saw them. The Bible tells us that John looked in and saw it and believed. What was it about the cloths and where they were lying and how they were lying that made John a believer? What he saw inside that tomb in the way the claws were positioned were what told him that the miracle of the resurrection had happened and that Mary's words were true. He was risen from the dead. So I want to explain to you what that was. These claws were lying in the exact same way they had been wrapped around Jesus. The only difference was that the body was gone. The body wasn't there. When John and Peter saw these cloths, they were the exact way that Joseph and Nicodemus had wrapped them. They were not disturbed. They were not removed. They had not been changed at all, except the body was gone. He was not there any longer. Now, the significance of this is that there had, it proved there was no grave robber that had taken his body and moved it. Because a grave robber would have either messed up the claws and left them in a disheveled way, or the grave robber would have removed them completely and just grabbed them up with the body and gone. Neither of those happened. It also proved to him that this was miraculous. There was no way physically, humanly possible that anyone could have taken that physical body out of those claws without messing the claws up or removing them. It was not possible physically in the natural realm of things. It could not have happened. This told John that a miracle had happened, and Jesus had come out of those claws, raised in a spiritual body, his glorified body. I want to propose to you what I believe happened. I believe he was raised inside the cold, dark tomb before any stone was ever rolled away. Maybe even before the earthquake, maybe when the earthquake happened, I don't know. He did not need any stone removed to let him out. He was in his physical, in his glorified natural spirit, I mean, glorified spiritual body. He was not in the natural body anymore. Now, the proof of that is that later on that same day, he walked through walls. He just appeared in closed rooms because he was in his spiritual body. He was not subject to the natural laws any longer. He did not need that stone removed to let him out. The stone was removed, I believe, at his order to the angels because he knew people were coming, witnesses were coming that had to get in because those witnesses were still in physical bodies and could not walk through the stone or see through the stone. They, it had to be removed. 
so that they could testify of the miracle of the resurrection that had happened in there. The stone was rolled away at his order so that the witnesses could get inside. The angel rolled it away. The guards fell down like dead men and the witnesses could now get inside, see the miracle of Christ's resurrection and testify of it. I've used an example in, in my class before when I taught this and I've wrapped up a baby doll just like Jesus would have been wrapped up just to point out and show that it was an impossibility any other way for this to have happened because there'd be no way to get that baby doll out of those wrappings without either disheveling them or removing them completely. And neither happened in this case. That proved to John by seeing that, that the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus had been raised, had been happened, had happened, and he was raised in his spiritual body. He now defied the laws of nature and the physical realm. The proof was in those claws. Hallelujah. There was no other way this could have happened. Jesus' body was taken straight out of the cloths without messing them up in a miraculous way. Now, I venture to say to you that it probably was in the same manner that Paul speaks about later in that same chapter in 15 about how we will be raised up in the twinkling of an eye. We will, and we look forward to to that day when we will go to see him. The rolling of the stone was at Jesus' order, and it was done to let the witnesses in. Hallelujah. I want to read you a couple of quotes, and then I want to look at two final scriptures as we draw down to a close. Barney Kasdan in God's Appointed Customs says this, the body was gone. The women and the other disciples never wondered if somehow the body was stolen because the I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but the burial garments were still in place. What else could they do but believe the words of the angelic messenger? He is not here. He is risen. They had witnessed the ultimate proof that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. God had raised him from the dead. Alfred Eidersham, also speaking in the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, says this, that talking about the claws, he says that they saw these and that there was no sign of haste, but all was orderly, leaving the impression of the one who had leisurely divested himself of what no longer befitted him. But the evidence that he had risen, which led them to the knowledge of what scripture taught on the subject. He went on to say in another place, that to have left the stone in place would have concealed the truth that Jesus was no longer dead, but that he was very much alive. Hallelujah. That's why Peter can say in Acts chapter 2 that it was not possible for the grave to hold him. The grave had no longer any power over him. This was the miracle of the resurrection this is the power of the resurrection that Paul speaks of in another place. And I want to read you that verse. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is expressing how he longs to know Christ. In this passage, 
And in verse 10, and he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul realized that there's a power in that resurrection that he wanted to know intimately. He wanted to experience. He wanted to have that. And beloved, we can also. And it's what can give us victory in our daily life. It is the power. It will help us. It will help us to be victorious. It will help us to, to um, enjoy what all that God has for us. This is the power of the resurrected Lord. And it also is the guarantee of our resurrection to come later. And I want to read you one other passage that spoke to my heart and the Lord reminded me about it. And I want, he wanted me to, I believe, leave you with this tonight. And it says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead, that same spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Beloved, the power of the resurrection can be yours as well. And you can experience it. You can know it just like Paul talked about. And you can see that same spirit of God giving life and quickening life inside our mortal bodies. Just like Paul said here in Romans chapter 8. That's the beauty of resurrection power. Hallelujah. I pray that this has been a blessing to you tonight's message, and all of the messages this week. I thank you so much for the honor and privilege to bring the word of the Lord to you, to share it with you, and I look forward to other times when I can do this again and share God's word with you. Beloved, may God bless you. If you don't know him, I invite you to come and know him right now. He will change your life. He will give you that resurrection power. He will deliver you from all of your sins and all of your addictions and that same resurrection power that raised him straight up out of the grave can raise you straight up out of whatever's holding you in bondage. And I invite you today to call out to him, to call upon him and he will hear you and he will save you and he will rescue you. And if you know him today, then that same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. He will be giving life to your mortal body in fresh new ways. And may you experience the power of the resurrection. God bless you is my prayer. I look forward to seeing and being with you again in time to come. God bless you.